Hello, everybody. Today is we are recording episode three of the podcast History Does You, and we're going to be doing the second part of our Roman Empire series. And this is probably going to be my favorite episode because I think this period of Roman history is super interesting, particularly because this is when the empire kind of reaches its height. Um, and really this period starting with Augustus, which we kind of went over at the end of the last episode is when the Roman empire starts to expand. It becomes more centralized, um, government under the rule of, um, a single emperor. Um, in my opinion, even though it's not necessarily the best form of democracy, considering once Augustus or Octavian, as he was originally named, uh, takes over. The Senate kind of becomes a puppet and grants him a bunch of different powers. So he gets control of the military, gets control of legislations, he gets control over fiscal policies. So it really begins under Octavian's rule that the empire really begins um, to shift primarily from, you know, Republican um, kind of virtues and traits to an imperial um, centralized government, um, which in my opinion worked better because under a strong emperor, it really allowed for decisions to be made by one person and it didn't really allow for, you know, different generals and different like politicians that could kind of go freewheeling, uh, throughout the empire. And, you know, whether it's starting a civil war or killing other people to try and gain, um, power, whatever that is. Um, didn't really work as well. So as we went over last episode, Octavian was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, and he was given and he was the heir to Julius Caesar. And obviously Julius Caesar gets appointed dictator, uh, but he is promptly assassinated only a few years into his tenure. And even though it's interesting, um, Octavian or Caesar was given the title of dictator, but Octavian receives the title of emperor and really dictators never really used again. Um, so really with Octavian taking over at the throne as the emperor, um, this starts what is called the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Um, and with this, it really starts a succession of different uh, members of the Caesar family kind of taking over as emperor. And this is also the start of what is called the Pax Romana, which is considered the Roman peace. It's really a period of almost 200 years where Rome pretty much thrived within its borders. There weren't really, you know, tons of political unrest. There was a brief period of civil war and I think it was around 60-ish AD, uh, which was called the year of four emperors where the emperors cycled through uh, in very quick succession. But for the most part, you know, power was peacefully handed down from one emperor to the next. So it was really important usually to the emperors for the good of Rome to make sure that their successor was kind of named at least a couple years before, you know, their health was deteriorating or whatever. Because obviously at this time there weren't, you know, medical services were really primitive so there wasn't if someone you know got sick for example with the flu their chance of dying was much higher than they would be today so with augustus taking over in 27 bc he reigns until 14 ad so a pretty long period of time i believe he's the longest reigning 
emperor um, based off time. And he leads a series of reforms in military, fiscal, and political powers. The Senate basically gives him power, power to appoint you know, his own membership to the government um, within the parameters of the existing kind of constitutional uh, machinery, or yeah, constitutional like monitor machinery. That's what it says here. Um, so really, he kind of created uh, a unique position by consolidating all these different powers and offices under a single um, throne, which being the emperor. So the emperor really had super broad powers to kind of run government, run military manners, run all of that. And it's also under Augustus' rule that the Roman army really becomes and truly shifts into a professional outfit. So, you know, soldiers are considered to be, it's a full-time profession. It's not necessarily a duty of a citizen. So we kind of see the idea of conscription kind of going out. Um, all these different things kind of change where the Roman legions really become loyal to the emperor itself and the empires opposed to being loyal to you know the generals that led them um which is often what led to civil war especially before augustus takes over and it's also under augustus that um the empire continues to expand in africa and asia minor he also pretty much conquers the entire um iberian peninsula um, and then his stepson, Tiberius, um, also conquered um, different provinces along the Rhine River in Pannonia, Dalmatia, Raetia, and temporary Germania, uh, which is obviously modern-day Germany. Um, and he was considered a prime candidate to eventually take over as emperor, uh, and he was granted uh, powers by Augustus. Um, and eventually in 13 AD, a law was passed which extended Augustus's power over some of the provinces to Tiberius. Um, now, the empire had really expanded under Augustus's rule, and he sought to really build defensible barriers along the emperor. I mean, at this time under Augustus' rule, the Romans hadn't fully invaded Britain yet, for example. So... The emperor at this time really stretched from modern-day France up until kind of modern-day Turkey, uh, right along the borders of like Syria and Armenia and those types of places. So really, in the later years of the Augustus emperorship, um, you know, Augustus ordered invasions of Illyria, Moesia, and Pannonia, which is just south of the Danubian River. Um, and also west of Germania or west of the Elbe River in Germania. Um, eventually, and everything had gone the plan. Um, for the most part, this allowed the Roman uh, military and Roman army to consolidate along um, the Rhine River, the Elbe River, the Danube River, and the Alps. So it really was a very long. For the most part, it was a super long border to defend, but there were natural barriers that made it much easier to defend. However, in AD 9, at the Battle of the Tudorberg Forest, um, the Germanic tribes led by Arminius, who originally was a Roman auxiliary who kind of knew their tactics, um, eventually ambushed and destroyed three legions on the command of Publius Concilius Varus, who was a politician and non-experienced general. And one of the big flaws, I think, of the empire was, you know, this over-reliance on having politicians lead military, 
So that disaster leads to the annihilation of three legions, almost 20, 000, or 15,000 regular soldiers, and I believe another 5,000 auxiliaries. So this really kind of destroys the psyche of a lot of the Roman military. Um, and eventually, you know, Augustus being really cautious, decided to secure all his territories west of the Rhine. Um, and eventually he would launch retaliatory uh, raids against the Germanic tribes in that area. But the Roman Empire never really advanced beyond the Rhine River again, which is kind of interesting that this one specific battle completely sort of destroyed um, kind of the confidence of the Roman army. Um, and in AD 14, Augustus eventually died at the age of 75, having ruled the empire for 40 years, and he was succeeded by his stepson Tiberius. Um, and it's interesting that the, the this specific age, the Augustan age, is what is kind of considered isn't as well documented as the age of Caesar and Cicero. Um, there are several specific historians that kind of document it. Um, and there are certain books that kind of go through this period, but they tend to rely heavily on, uh, different, um, secondary ancient sources and other primary sources. And obviously as we talked last episode, um, writers tended to kind of inflate the accomplishments of different emperors, tended to inflate the numbers and the expansion and all of this stuff. So it's always difficult to kind of pin exact numbers of, for example, like the population of the empire over this time, um, you know, all of that stuff. So obviously with the death of Augustus, his son, <clears throat> uh, Tiberius takes over, um, and really it's under Tiberius that, his reign starts out um, relatively peaceful. Um, Tiberius kind of taking over from Augustus, secured the overall power of Rome, um, and was able to really en enrich its treasury and kind of centralize its economy. Um, but it really, his rule kind of became characterized by paranoia that people were plotting against him, that generals were plotting against him. Um, and he held a series of trials and execution, which pretty much continued, um, until his death in 37 AD. And eventually he left all his power in the hands of, um, the Praetorian guard or the commander of his guard, Lucius Aelius Janus. Um, and eventually Tiberius himself decided to retire, um, to the island of Capri in 26 AD, leaving administration to the hands of Janus, who continued the kind of, uh, carry out these persecutions. And this was obviously odd because you really had kind of a shadow emperor kind of running things on the side while Tiberius kind of just went and retired into the sunset on this island of Capri. Um, and eventually Tiberius dies in 37 AD. And um, I think the, his, the grand nephew of Augustus takes over who was named Cajula, Cajula, I can't really pronounce that. Um, he was son of several uh, members of the Caesar family, and he started out well, uh, putting an end to the persecutions and kind of ending um, Tiber or destroying a lot of Tiberius's records because under for a lot of Romans, uh, there wasn't a ton of uh, happiness surrounding the trials and stuff like that. Um, and eventually it emerged in 30, like very early, um, that could, 
Caligula um, demonstrated features of menstrual instability led led to you know modern historians and psychologists to think that he had encephalitis. I forgot how to pronounce it. Um, whatever it is, um, it seems that based off the documentation of Caligula, uh, um, the um, it really changes how or changes his reign because it's kind of again similar to Tiberius that it's plagued by paranoia and almost think that he had a mental breakdown. So having all of this, eventually he is assassinated by the commander of the Praetorian Guard, Cassius Chiria, and also killed in this purge was his fourth wife, Cassinia, and their daughter, Julia Drusilla. Um, and for two days after the assassination, the Senate actually debated the merits of trying to restore the uh, Republic. Um, but Claudius, um, who was another member of the Caesar family, um, had long considered to be kind of a weakling and a fool by the rest of the family. However, the Praetorian Guard uh, claimed, acclaimed him to be emperor, um, but and Claudius wasn't paranoid and he wasn't insane, so he had that going for him. And he was really able to administer the empire with pretty much reasonable ability. Um, for the most part, he improved the bureaucracy, he streamlined citizenship, um, and he also ordered the construction of a port at Ostia Antica for Rome, because obviously Rome is not along um, the coast, it's inland, so building that port allowed for a place uh, specifically for grain to come from other parts of the empire um, for the winter season when the Mediterranean becomes super rough. Um, and Claudius, um, under his uh, command specifically, I do want to get into the strategy of defending the empire because it's really at the Rhine River where the empire stops and really... What is called, there was a super good book under, I think his name is Edward Lutwick, wrote a really good book about called The Grand Strategy of the Roman Empire, which talks about the empire um, from the, from a hunter, from I think the reign of Augustine to like 300 AD, kind of documenting the strategy of the Roman Empire. And it's super interesting, um, what he calls the Claudio Julius uh, Doctrine really focused on consolidating the borders and having a super spread out um, forces and kind of having a defense in depth along the border. So the idea was that if, you know, Germanic tribes were going to be raiding across the river, that they would be able to be stopped immediately and not be allowed to penetrate deeper into the empire because obviously in the empire, it was even though the Romans built tons of roads and all that, it still took time to move large amounts of military forces around the empire. So it was key that if, you know, Germanic tribes were attacking across the Rhine or the Danube River, that there were legions there that could immediately respond. And if it turned out to be a large invasion, um, then those legions would be tasked with specifically just holding the tribes in place until reinforcements could arrive. But there really wasn't um, large-scale Germanic invasions until much later. So for the most part, there were really barriers instructed in places where the river um, wasn't as wide and places where the river didn't go. But really from the Rhine River all the way to the Danube River is really, you can chart, that was pretty much the limit of the Roman Empire. Obviously two big um, barriers that made it a lot easier to... Um, 
defend. And also in Sunder Claudius's reign that the um, empire begins to permanently expand in Britannia. Obviously, Julius Caesar had um, launched several expeditions in uh, the 50s uh, in BC, um, but had never been successfully able to uh, permanently do anything. So it's really under Claudius's reign that a permanent um, military presence and Roman presence is established in Britannica. And it's really over the next 50 to 60 years that the Romans really begin to expand, consolidate, and, and subjugate a lot of the tribes that live there. Um, so it's really under Claudius's reign that um, he's able to, you know, consolidate the empire, improve its bureaucracy, and really uh, provide uh, a lot of stability that the previous two emperors hadn't um, done. Um, so eventually Claudius is, dies in 54 AD, uh, which pays the paths for Nero, uh, which I believe he was 17 when he took over at the time, um, which is a super young age. He reigned from 54 AD to 68 AD. And it's during his rule that Nero focused much of his attention on diplomacy trade and increasing the cultural capital of the empire, which I think is critical because he ordered uh, the buildings of theaters and promoted a lot of athletic games in Rome itself, but also the concept of Romanization. So um, Roman soldiers usually would be granted um, land kind of in the places they served and really building infrastructure and stuff throughout the you know, the empire's new uh, provinces and culture was super important because the more that these places were integrated into the empire, the easier it would be to control because the cultures would be uh, more similar. Um, and it's also um, under his reign, um, included the Roman Parthian War, which eventually led to a negotiated peace in 63 AD, and also a revolt led by Boudicca and Britannica in 60. 61 AD, um, and also kind of the improvement of cultural ties with Greece. And also, I think that's something that I'm studying right now. I'm studying um, counterinsurgency um, in my global research practicum uh, for international studies, and I'm doing different test cases or different different case studies kind of on um, insurgencies kind of throughout. And I'm studying in specifically this Roman period because the Roman Empire had the deal with a lot of revolts, uh, specifically with Boudicca and Britannica, and also the Judean revolt, and I think it was around 70 AD. Uh, but it's interesting, um, the Roman Empire kind of waged counterinsurgency tactics by, you know, spreading out their forces to really kind of control these different tribes, but it's under Boudicca who's able to, you know, rally a lot of different tribes, leads this revolt. Um, and eventually she's defeated at the battle of, I think it's Waitling Street is what it's called, but there's never really been a specific place that's been discovered where the battle actually takes place. So, you know, even though the Romans really win a decisive battle and really demonstrate how, you know, in a, you know, despite being heavily outnumbered, because there's really only one legion that actually fought in this battle. So really around like 5,000 men, I think, plus another 4,000 auxiliaries, were able to defeat this ginormous army, but it still required a lot of different, uh, two other legions to be brought to Britannica in order to control it. So it's interesting. It seemed like the Romans always sought 
a decisive battle in order to win the wars. But I think they discovered, especially in like Britannia or Britannia, for example, and like Judea, that even though they were able to win decisive battles and like destroy large amounts of the forces, they still would have to go and pacify a lot of these different regions. Um, so it required a lot of, you know, soldiers and resources in order to wage these kind of counterinsurgency operations, um, which I think, you know, this is kind of the first time we sort of see like an empire waging very basic counterinsurgency methods, obviously. Um, I think we'll definitely do different episodes on different insurgencies because I find that um, super interesting for me. Um, so it's under Nero that that happens. And eventually there's also the Great Fire of Rome, which uh, because many believe that Nero was responsible for it. Um, I think he eventually blamed the Christians um, for most of it. Um, and for the most part, he was considered to be, by the end of his reign, to be super unpopular. And eventually a military coup drove Nero into hiding and eventually facing um, execution at the hands of the Roman Senate. Um, he reportedly committed suicide in 68 AD. Um, and he left no heir. So this leads to, in the year 68, 69 AD, uh, what is considered to be the year of the four emperors. Um, and it was called, it was a super brief period of civil war. So between June of 68 AD and December 69 AD, Rome witnessed the successive rise of Galbia, Otho, Vitellius, and the final ascension of Vespasian, uh, the first ruler of the Flavian dynasty, uh, which is another super important dynasty uh, in the Roman Empire. Um Eventually, this anarchy kind of created – had serious implications because, um, you know, different uh, king client kingdoms and Germanic tribes heard about it. So they lost raids and there were rebellions. Um, and even though Augustus had established a standing army where soldiers served under kind of military governors – uh, one of the problems of this was that having a permanent military governor led to um, soldiers developing a degree of loyalty to the commanders, not to the emperor. And thus, you know, the empire was kind of vulnerable um, to civil war really at any time. So this continued to kind of be a problem throughout the Roman era that soldiers really had to grapple with being loyal not only to... Uh, the empire and the republic, but also to the commanders itself. And that's really often what led to civil wars and allowed the, these different people to kind of wage civil war because of the uh, way that soldiers were often loyal to specific commanders. Um, although the Flavians were technically a short-lived dynasty, it did help restore um, stability throughout the empire. And although all three have kind of been criticized because of their more centralized rule, because obviously having a centralized rule where it's always difficult to communicate with the outer stretches of the empire made it, uh, people to, I mean, personally, I think that having a more centralized rule was better for made it easier to administer because there was a central person kind of making decisions as opposed to different people going and doing off and doing their own things. Um, but Vespasian had kind of come up through the ranks um, who had been given rule over much of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. He also quashed the uh, Judean rebellion in 70 AD, which eventually led to the destruction of Jerusalem and pretty bloody insurgency 
um, by uh, the Judean people, which you know required a long-lasting uh, military presence in order uh, to quell it. Um, although he was considered technically to be an autocrat by the Senate, he was able to, um, again, kind of centrali- centralize the rule. Um, he was able to relieve Rome of a lot of the financial burden- burdens because Nero had obviously uh, constructed a lot of projects and buildings and all of that. Um, but he also um, reformed the way that taxation went about. Um, and he really wanted to um, decentralize actually the provinces and the taxation system. So taxes, by dividing it into different regions, it was able easier to collect taxes in provinces rather than trying to collect it from Rome itself, even though through this taxation system, I believe that Rome was able to uh, get... Um, I'm using my train of thought here. Uh, it was easier uh, to collect taxes for the most part. Um, so the Civil War period really showed how legions who were supposed to, you know, really be loyal to the empire often focus more on their province and their commander. And this um, – was mostly caused by the placement of having native auxiliary units in the areas where they recruited in. Um, Vespasian stopped this, so he would move, he would recruit these units and then send them to different parts of the empire. Um, same with the legions. So it's kind of under Vespasian that the um, uh, the Roman Empire starts to um, shift legions kind of in a rotation so that they wouldn't permanently become in place and kind of become more loyal to the province than to the um, legion. Um, And also he um, spread them along the borders and he also began to, you know, recruit, um, uh, recruit exclusively uh, from Italy, Gaul and Hispania. So that's where the majority of the regular legionaries came from. And a lot of the auxiliaries came from different parts of the empire. Um, so for the most part, Vespasian has a successful reign, um, and he dies in 79 AD, and his son Titus takes over. Um, he was an effective general, and he helped secure um, the eastern part of Syria and um, the Levant. And he also, as we talked about, helped destroy um, significant Jewish revolt at the time. Um, his However, his reign, despite being a super successful general who's well-documented, um, was marked by disasters. And since 79 AD, that Mount Vesuvius uh, erupted in Pompeii, which destroyed um, much, pretty much the entire city. There was also a lot of wildfires in the south of Rome. Or there was also a fire that destroyed much of Rome again. So there were two pretty big fires in a span of like 11 years. Um, but he did put a lot of time and resources into making it rebuilding Rome and rebuilding Pompey or Pompeii, or not rebuilding it, but kind of um, compensating a lot of citizens that were affected by it. Um, he also begun to expand the amphitheater uh, that had be had been begun by um, that had begun by Vespasian. So that's actually the 
amphitheater that still exists today, which is kind of insane. Eventually it was, uh, for the most part, it was finished in the year 80 AD and it was um, celebrated by basically 100 days straight of having 100 gladiators fight it out. Um, and it was an impressive feat of engineering for the time. Um, and it's still impressive that it still stands today. Um, so if you're in Italy, I would definitely check it out. It's kind of a super cool piece of Roman history. And there's also a lot of Roman um, architecture and stuff that still exists in the city today. Um, so after um, Titus, uh, a man named Domitian takes up. Uh, takes over and this is the last of the Flavian dynasty and he takes over in the year 81 AD and really throughout the kind of Flavian's reign there had always been poor relations with the senate because uh, due to their kind of autocratic rule um, however Domit Domitian was kind of the first one to really encounter serious issues with it and he often clashed with the senate over military matters over economic matters over that um, it's really kind of over the brain or at the end of his reign that Domitian becomes extremely paranoid, which um, believes, um, which is believed because of the treatment he received by his father. Um, he never really trusted anyone. This really hamstrung his ability to, you know, kind of govern the empire. Um, and this led to a large number of arrests, executions and seizures of the property, especially for the senators who really couldn't stand him. Eventually, this led to his murder in 96 AD, um, by, orchestrated by his enemies in the Senate. So again, you know, those senators were always conspiring to kill people because that just seems like what they did. They killed Caesar. They killed a bunch of different emperors. So obviously, Caesar is the most uh, famous uh, murder, but really murdering people for political means was a super common um thing that occurred throughout uh, the Roman period. Um, so it's really after the um, Flavian dynasty that basically from the year 96 AD to 180 AD is the Nerva and Tone dynasty. And it's considered the period of five good emperors, which succession was peaceful and the empire really thrived. I think this is the period when Rome was at its peak in terms of its territorial expansion, in terms of its military prowess, in terms of its economic stability. Um, so we'll start off with Nerva, who only ruled for two years. Um, he kind of set a new tone. He released a lot of the prisoners that um, were kind of taken under Domitian. Um, he banned uh, the prosecutions uh, for treason. He restored a lot of the confiscated property from the Senate. So the Senate liked him because he gave a lot of their stuff back and eventually they wouldn't, um, uh, wouldn't kind of conspire against him. Um, support within the army remained pretty strong. Um, in October 97 AD, the Praetorian Guard actually laid siege to the Imperial Palace on Palatine Hill and took Nerva hostage. Um, and he was eventually forced to... Um, Submit to their man's agreeing to hand over those responsible in Domitian's death, um, and even giving a speech thanking the rebellious Praetorians. So, quite a few of the senators who had conspired against uh, Domitian uh, were executed, um, uh, which is kind of interesting. So, he only lasts two years uh, and eventually dies after. And eventually, um, 
a man named Trajan uh, takes over. Um, and eventually under his command, he goes and takes a lot of the people in the Praetorian Guard and executes them uh, for the mutiny. Um, and I think Trajan is a super fascinating figure because it's under his command that the Empire wages two pretty big wars. First against the Dacians, um, which is a region north of uh, the lower Danube, which had pretty much long been an opponent to Rome and had launched raids and stuff. It's kind of in the area around where modern Romania and Hungary are. Um, and it's interesting, he, um, he decided... First, he launched, um, it was called the First Dacian War. Eventually, it was kind of really more of a large expedition that destroyed a lot of um, cities and stuff. Eventually, it stops, um, but the uh, king of the Dacians, Decebalus, um, eventually decides to reinvigorate the Dacian army. So uh, Trajan decides to permanently annex um Dacia and eventually launches what is considered the second uh, war or second Dacian war eventually leads to the conquest of it. And is considered, and it is a major accomplishment um, who eventually ordered 123 days of celebration throughout the empire. He also constructed the uh, Trajan's column in Rome to glorify the victory. Um, and only a couple years later um, in 112 AD, um, Trajan waged a pretty uh, big war against the uh, Parthian Empire, which had also been a long opponent to Rome. Eventually, this kind of leads to the annexation of Armenia and also in Mesopotamia. Um, so this um, eventually captured the city of Susa, which I think was considered the capital of the Parthian Empire. Um, he considered he continued southward to the Persian Gulf, uh, where he declared. Um, Mesopotamia to be a new province. Um, and he also wished that he wanted to continue to advance east, eventually following in the steps of Alexander the Great. But at this time, he was considered to be old. So pretty much after 168, he returned to Rome, and really it's under his uh, reign that the empire reaches its maximum extent. Um, you really had the ability to go pretty much from the Persian Gulf all the way to Britannia, and you could still be in Roman territory. Um, Hadrian was also another emperor that takes over uh, after the reign of Trajan, which is considered to be super successful. Um, and despite his success as military administrator, Hadrian was really marked by kind of defenses of the empire's vast uh, territories rather than engage um, in huge military conflicts. He consolidated a lot of the um, forces in the region. Specifically, he withdrew from Mesopotamia, uh, which he considered to be super imp like impossible to defend. He also built the Hadrian Wall, which actually still exists today, kind of along the modern-day border of Scotland. And there's kind of a lot of um, you know thinking and speculation over to why the uh, this wall was built, um, and a lot of sources point to, or a lot of people point to the quote-unquote annihilation of the Ninth uh, Roman Legion, uh, which had been a legion that was raged under Julius Caesar. It's interesting. There have been a lot of movies made about this um, and a lot of books written about this. Um, 
theorizing that the Roman, or the Ninth Roman Legion was sent north uh, beyond the, like, kind of the, what was considered the border of the Roman walls and eventually was annihilated by the tribes that lived there. Uh, but it was only, there's there were still markings um, that were found in Nijmegen, uh, Netherlands, which suggests that the Legion wasn't necessarily annihilated. Um, but there have been a couple movies uh, made about it. Specifically, I think there's The Centurion, which features Michael Fassbender. Uh, there's also one with Chenny Tatum called The Eagle, which, you know, they're not the best movies, but I always kind of enjoy um, history. So it's kind of, you know, these ideas that kind of revolved really around this region of Britannia and France or and Gaul and kind of beyond really the borders that's considered kind of just like no man's land. It's the land of barbarians. So there's really this mystique that kind of gets built up um, over really a period of time. So, and also it's under Hadrian that the first, he was the first emperor to extensively like tour the vast majority of the empire. He went and donated money to local construction projects. Um, he also vi um, visited Britain and obviously ordered the famous Hadrian Wall, um, as well as different uh, defenses in Germania and uh, Northern Africa. Uh, and for the most part, his domestic reign was also super peaceful. So um, I would also personally consider the reign of Hadrian and Trajan to be probably the most successful period of the time, um, really because it uh, constructed defenses or it really expanded the empire to its greatest extent. Then they also built defenses uh, to defend the vast borders of the empire. Um, so the person that takes over after Hadrian is Antonius Pius, um, and his reign was comparatively peaceful. Um, there were obviously several revolts and different disturbances that often occurred, especially in the outlying provinces of Judea and Britain, but none of them were really considered serious. Um, it is believed that the unrest in Britain eventually led to the destruction of the Antonian Wall, uh, or the construction of the Antoine Wall, which I think was just north of Hadrian Walls. I don't remember exactly where they were, um, but his his reign was around 20 years and also super, super successful. Um, and eventually a man named Marcus Aurelius takes over um, in 161 AD, um, which is considered a super successful reign. Um, but there were a lot of military conflicts under his reign. Um, specifically in Asia, the Parthian Empire kind of revitalized itself amongst several assaults in Syria and kind of modern-day Turkey. Um, he eventually sent his co-emperor, which was something new, uh, Lucius Verus, to command the legions in the east. Um, he was also authoritative enough to command the full loyalty legions, but already power enough that he could but here it was already powerful enough that he like didn't really have a ton of incentive to overthrow Marcus. So the perception, even though it was probably considered risky to try and do this, um, didn't necessarily, you know, change too much. Um, and in the last years of his life, uh, a philosopher, um, or Marcus was also considered a philosopher, and he wrote a book on Stoic philosophy called Meditations. And it's also considered one of the like great contributions to philosophy, which is super interesting. Um, he also did have to um, contend with a brief rebellion under Arvidius Cassius, 
who had been a you know officer during the wars against Persia, and he had been posted uh, to northern Germany in what is called the Macromanic Wars. So periodically, the Romans would kind of launch expeditions into Germania in order to kind of just say, hey, we're still here, uh, we'll burn your village, don't cross the river kind of type thing. Um, it's also a really super interesting because it is possible that an alleged Roman embassy or Roman um, or Romans arrived in eastern Han China in 166 AD along the Roman military route into the South China Sea, landing in Zhuazhou, which is northern Vietnam, um, bearing gifts for the Emperor Juan of Han, which was, I believe, eventually um, sent under Marcus Aurelius. And there's a lot of documentation about this because it's believed that this is sort of the first time that it is believed that the Romans actually interact with the Han Empire, which was I'll probably do a separate episode on that eventually because I really find it interesting, the interactions between the Han Empire and the Roman Empire, and really the Roman Empire beyond its borders, I think is super in, uh, interesting. So it was really believed there's both Chinese documentation and Roman documentation that there was a lot of interaction sort of, uh, especially with like the trade routes because the Romans really liked the silk. Um, and I believe the Romans like traded coins and different stuff. Um, and it's believed that I think Roman coins were found as early as like the fourth century AD, which kind of may have come through the earliest versions of what is called the Silk Road through Central Asia. Um, yeah, Chinese historical texts kind of claim that the Romans first landed, um, in China, uh, in order to conduct diplomacy. Um, so there's a lot of confusion of... Kind of what really actually went on in these times uh, specifically because it's always difficult to kind of document exactly, you know, the interactions between the Roman Empire and the Han Empire. Um, so I definitely want to do a specific episode in the future kind of talking about the interactions between these two empires because I just think it's super interesting um, to think that really, you know, I think there's always this theory that, you know, Rome didn't really interact a lot. Um, with, you know, outside people because they're always fighting them, but that's not always necessarily true because the Romans really had a vast um, trade network that really stretched from the known world, like from the known world. Um, and also the Romans did launch quite a few expeditions into Central Africa as well. Obviously the Saharan Desert was like, an, again, a natural barrier that um, was easier to defend. Uh, but the Romans definitely launched different exp Roma, like expeditions, I think, um, along like the Nile River, for example, um, into, I think it's Lake Chad, which is in Central Africa. Um, again, I definitely want to do a specific episode on like the Roman Empire um, and its interactions beyond its border. But anyway, for the most part, the reign of Marcus Aurelius is um, considered to be a super successful period. However, this leads into what is considered uh, the year of five emperors, emperors, which is um, Commodus uh, takes over after him, and he reigns from 180 AD to 192 AD, um, and he was the son of Marcus Aurelius, so he had really been groomed for the um, for the emperor spot. 
And unfortunately, he dies in 192 AD without naming a successor. And this eventually leads to kind of a series of assassinations and brief period of civil war um, where kind of like different people just, you know, take over and then promptly get assassinated. Um, yeah, so for the most part, <clears throat> um, I would consider this period the year or uh, what is this called? I keep forgetting the names. Um the Nerve and Tone dynasty that be the most successful dynasty of the Roman Empire because it stretched, it really expanded the empire to its greatest um, point and really was able to consolidate a lot of power throughout the, um, throughout the empire. Um, so it's kind of around 193 AD that the empire begins to expect or gets to um, gets into serious issues. Um, like I said, it's always difficult to control, um, you know, when you're trying to control land from like Britannia all the way to the Levant, all the way down to the Saharan desert, it's always difficult to control because obviously, you know, the communication, even though, again, even though the Romans built, a ton of infrastructure and stuff in order to make it easier for trade and military uh, soldiers to kind of flow, you know, to different places uh, where there were crises. Uh, it was a difficult thing to do. So, um, yeah, I mean, for the most part, uh, again, I don't want to go an hour and 38 minutes again. I think that's super long. Um, and I'm really looking again to kind of do this um, episode based around or based the series in order to buy myself some time to like conduct some interviews, which I actually did. So I do, I have done one interview so far. So that episode will be coming um, February um, 16th. Cause obviously I still want to fi finish up the series and it's also going to give me another two weeks to, um, hopefully do some more interviews. So, you know, really after this series is done, you'll get to hear other people other than me. So I'm super pumped about that because I love to listen to, you know, different students and historians who, you know, have a certain passion about history and love to talk about, you know, that particular event or whatever it may be. So definitely be on the lookout for that in the future. Um, again, your support is always good. I also recently started, um, an Instagram account where I can kind of actually post um, the episodes and stuff there as opposed to use my own social media. So definitely give me a follow at History Does You. Um, I definitely look forward to kind of exploring this period in his or the Roman period in history like more in depth. And hopefully we'll be able because there are a lot of different experts out there um, in this period. So um Thanks for the listen, um, and this is me signing off.